Okay, question for you. Do you believe in God? You came to church. What kind of a question? Who asks that at church? Which God? Which God? Jesus. Got some answers from the audience. Good. Okay, um, maybe it'll surprise you to know, maybe not. The Western worldview is not typically one that would say, I believe in God. It's, it's a secularized worldview. What that really just means is this entire attempt to state that gods and fairies and magic, anything that we can't see that's not right in front of us, uh, isn't really real. We can respect it. You know, there's stories that have impact that kind of influence us, right? But they can stay in the walls and in the books and in Harry Potter and Hogwarts and whatever, and it's, it's not real. And all the stuff that we can see fits under a microscope and we can touch it and taste it. That's, that's the pretty normal view, right? It, there's no God. Some people call it atheism, but then this thing has been happening to me a lot lately. Maybe this, you've experienced this too. And actually, I find this in the city of Mission more than anywhere else, uh, at least in the valley here, that it's not that we don't believe that there's something bigger out there in general. In fact, spiritual, so maybe what the thing is, is we ask the question wrong. We say, do you believe in God? No, not a chance. I'm not religious. How many people say, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual? There's something else out there on the other side of the veil, right? There's something that I know I can't explain. There's stuff that impacts me and affects me and influences me, but it's, it's not religion, it's not God. When you get to know people and you start sharing the stories, right, and you, you, you actually get into deeper uh, connections and relationships with people, you start hearing about the curiosity and the wonder and the hope, because at the end of the day, we actually all kind of need some hope. I mean, even too, like, when's the last time you went to a funeral and they weren't looking down in a better place, right? Regardless of a faith position, regardless of any sort of data or fact, we have a hope because we know that there has to be more than just what we are feeling and smelling and touching and what our shoes are in at any given time or our feet are in our shoes. There's other stuff, there's other stuff that's out there. In fact, so here's a study that uh, we got some statistics that uh, one group took a look at in Canada over the past 10 years. They took a look at some census data, um, long-form census, and found that over uh, the, um, the past 10 years, from 2010 to 2020, this is when the study came out, uh, over 76% of British Columbians declare that they are not religious. And that's all religious, not Christianity, not following Jesus, all sorts of religious stances. 76% of British Columbians, uh, British Columbians. That's a 15% drop from 10 years ago. But when you ask the question, are you spiritual? Suddenly that number changes to something like only 35% of British Columbians would say that they are not spiritual either. So we have this sort of thing. Even Jim Carrey is spiritual. Ace Ventura, he's meditating, right? He's opened his mind up to the cosmos. Uh, something that we would never think we'd actually say that sentence. I never thought I would say that sentence. The actor from Dumb and Dumber is spiritual. Often it's just listening to Oprah or sending positive vibes out there, doing yoga every now and then and eating free-range kale. <laughs> but for some of us, some of you maybe who are here, and if you're checking out or listening, or the worldview of likely your neighbors or your, some friends and family are actually increasingly spiritual to the sense that we know that there are other powers and other senses and other things and deities and whatever it is out there with influence and effect on our lives and our world. 
and we actually start to attempt to do things. Uh, who has been at a craft market here? Mission loves craft fairs, right? And this is also the season for craft fairs. It's like every day there is something happening, whether it's a swap meet or a craft fair or somebody selling their essential oils. Um, and every time I go to them, and this happens especially in Mission, there are all sorts of spiritualized, uh, spiritually charged items that you can buy, whether it's crystals to heal your, the energy in your bathroom, and not like Drano, but like <laughs> emeralds and all sorts of stuff. There is plaques, and there are people who will do cleansings. And the thing is, this is not embarrassing language. On Facebook, people are talking all the time about the need for uh, fixing the energy or the sense or the spirits out there. So we actually have this awareness in our minds. We are secularized, but we are increasingly spiritual as Eastern worldviews start coming into the world because it's actually a very, very recent thing in the history of humanity that we've said there is nothing but what we can touch. Only about 150 years that that started becoming a bit more of a mainstream thought process and only in a very small chunk of the world. And in fact, actually, during the summer of 2020, that was like the height of the pandemic, right? What a bummer time when we were forced totally inside and we really had no clue what was going on. Uh, one study actually found that of people who have reported they're not religious, they don't go to church, they don't have a faith position, 30% of those people prayed for the first time in their lives. Very interesting, very interesting, Rob. Because here's the thing. Why are we talking about this stuff for Christmas? Because as I was looking at the birth story and I was taking a look at what this whole thing of following Jesus is and the impacts in the world and our worldviews and our understandings of God do, I thought what's increasingly happening, and even if you've gone to church your whole life, sometimes we get this view in our minds that God's real, he's present, he's out there, maybe cares sometimes, maybe doesn't care. We can't really know him. He's not going to hold our hand. Maybe he is a, uh, as one of my youth kids from a while back said, is a um, wobbly, massive form of green gas, to which another youth kid just said, no, that's just a fart cloud. Um, we can't understand God, but then the birth story comes along and actually gives us a totally different narrative that says, no, no, no. We sometimes try to run away and we think we can't understand God, but he has actually come into our world. He has come so close that people are literally present at his birthday. God is with us and God is knowable and he is present and personable. That's what the Advent season is going to be about for us. We're calling it God is with us, taking a look at the name given to God, given to Jesus, Emmanuel. God is present in our lives. So, of like any good Christmas dialogue, we are gonna go to the Christmas story. No, we're actually gonna go to the Old Testament. We're gonna be diving in. If you've got your Bibles here with you, we're gonna be doing some study. Uh, we might get some of the scripture up on the screens. Uh, we might not, not totally sure, but we're gonna be in Exodus 34, starting around verse four. We're gonna be jumping around a little bit back and forth. Uh, to bring you into the context, the book of Exodus is, sorry, Chad, I keep kicking the drums here. <laughs> You guys get to, be, you get to see the show of my ADD just get unleashed as I do some laps around this thing. The, the book of Exodus, the story of Exodus, is, uh, is the story of God bringing the Israelite people, his nation that he adopted, that he took um, out of generational captivity to Egypt. Uh, he brought them into the wilderness, into the desert, and he ultimately led them into a land, a promised land designed just for them to establish a nation and to settle in. And um, 
And, and the name Israel just means uh, wrestles with God, and you're going to see in a moment why names really matter. And, and God does this primarily, the whole story of Exodus, he does all of this primarily through the leadership of a man named Moses, um, who was reluctant at first, but he agreed to, and he connected with Moses. And then we get to this point, and the context that I'm going to set it up for you in chapter 34 is this point where we get the Ten Commandments. Um, these Ten Commandments where God said, this is what I expect of you, this is how you should live, this is the ideal design for human life and flourishing and cultural design and, and everything like that, carved out on some stone tablets. Moses went up to a mountain, met God. God gave him these instructions, carved it into a stone. And so that's what we're going to be reading into, but it's the moment before this all happened. So Exodus 34, uh, verse 4. We're starting actually at verse 6. Don't go down there. Okay. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He, pu he punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and the fourth generation. Oh, man. I was reading through that at first, and I loved the first part. And then I thought, I'll stop halfway through. And I don't want to bring the next part in. I don't, I just, let's just skip it. But you can't do that. I can't, I can't just skip out the hard part. We're actually going to take a look at this whole thing. What I will say is I only have uh, 65 minutes this morning, so I can't do the whole thing. Just joking, 20 minutes, it's okay. Um, but if you do want to dialogue more about this, we're going to break, break it apart a little bit. I would love to chat with you about this. There's so much amazing commentary on all of this. Um, the biggest thing what we want to do, it, in our minds, we try to often make God what we want God to be. We try to describe God the way we think God should be. There's actually a, a professor in a seminary, Scott McKnight, who does this little experiment with his uh, first-year students all the time where he does a personality test, a personality profiling test, and then he, a little bit later, gets them to fill out one on behalf of God. What's God's personality like? And then he compares the two and he chuckles because he says like 90% of them are the same for each student. Even though each student's totally different, they're the same, right? Because of course, right, God is, you know, he votes the way you vote and goes to the restaurants you go to. Of course, he's probably, this is an American study, right? So God's usually a Republican and um, watches the right TV shows and affirms the stuff, right? Because we make God who we think God should be. Uh, but we can't do that. We actually have to take God at how he describes himself. And that is what this passage is. In fact, it's the only time in all of scripture that we have recorded where God actually gives his, in his own words his description of who he is, his character, his design. And what's fascinating is he starts off with his name and then some characteristics. He doesn't give us a textbook using words of theologians out there like omnipotent and omnipresent, and he can create a rock that's so big that he can't lift, and then he does it and all these things, and it's not this, he's not a textbook. He actually introduces himself like you would introduce yourself to a potential father-in-law, right? Or a family member, or a close friend, or a new friend, or a roommate. What's your name, what do you like? So this is how God does this. And, and the reason why this even happens, let's back it up a little bit, some of the context for why Moses does this, is because uh, Moses has been very close with God the whole time. He's been connecting with God and, and everything, but then Moses says, okay, it's felt a little distant, God. 
And, and actually what we'll do, let's read it through. So let's back it up a little bit. If you've got your Bibles, we're just a little bit before 34.4. We're in Exodus 33.7. This is bringing us up, um, and you can just listen along to this. So Exodus 33.7, now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Some translations will call it the tabernacle. And anyone inquiring of the Lord, of God, would go to this tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, a pillar of cloud would come down and stay on the entrance of that tent while the Lord spoke to Moses. And whenever people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped. Here's the presence of God. And Moses, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one would speak to a friend. This is not the picture of a God who is far off and distant that you need uh, crystals and plaques and uh, some sort of crazy chance to meet. This is a close and personal friend. That's the picture of what we get for God. And what's happened is Moses now is taking this moment. So that was the relationship Moses had, but he's like, I want it even closer, God. I get that we chat, I get that we have these connections, but it's kind of like at the, uh, up to this point, you know, if you have that distant relative that you follow on Instagram, so you get all of their fun little updates, and you know the different kind of clothing they're wearing, and they support Ukraine, and you know some of their, the, you suddenly start hearing some stuff like their position on masking and stuff, and then they start trying to sell you on their small home business, and then you unfollow them. It's a little bit dis distant, and Moses is like, I want it really close, God. I want it really close. So Moses asks, God, show me your glory. Show me your name. Who are you? And he doesn't just ask, like, God, what's your name? Like a name tag to print it out of the check-in label station. He says, show me your glory, which is like an Old Testament way of saying, like, God, I want to know you completely, your character, everything about you holistically. And then we get that statement. That's God's response to it. God says, okay, all right, Moses, I, we've, been, we've been close, but I hear your request. I want to be close with you. So he gives it that thing, and I'm, I'm going to read it again through. So then we get this statement, because it's the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible itself, this statement, Exodus 34, uh, 6 and 7. The Lord, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slowed anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, wickedness and rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. Uh, spending a couple minutes on this, just to break it apart. So the first things we hear, the Lord, the Lord. All your Bibles likely say that. My translation has in parentheses here, Yahweh, because that's the actual name. That's the name that God declares himself. This is what you're supposed to call me, Yahweh. Y-A-H-W-E-H -E is how we kind of give it the anglicized transliteration, how we say it. But that is God's name. We're going to dive into that in a moment. But how does he describe himself? What's the first things? Compassionate and gracious, and slow to anger. Actually, the Hebrew is fun. It says long of nostrils, right? Which, pff, what does that mean? It takes a long time to snort out your anger, I think, is what it means. Slow to anger, and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands. And I love this. Thousands actually could mean thousands of people or thousands of generations of people. Like, it's meant to be an infinite number. He has an infinite amount of love. And he is forgiving of wickedness and rebellion and sin. And then this piece here, 
we'll just give it a little bit because I want to leave it hanging. I'm like, okay, good stuff, God. And then punishing children? What does that mean? So there's two things. God is just. It's also a characteristic of him. God is just. He knows what he has said. He knows what you've done. He knows if you're trying or not trying, if you're rebelling against him or if you're trying to get right with him. He knows if you're in his presence or if you are uh, wicked. He's just. But take a look at the intentional contrast that's left in there. It shows generational sin. Your children, your children's children for third and fourth generation. What I actually find so interesting is it doesn't mean holding necessarily that there's a punishment just because your great-grandfather did something really dumb and now you get it as well. That's not necessarily it. Sin has a way of impacting and affecting and destroying our lives. And not just that, but it destroys our children's lives and it destroys them. And in fact, they've seen in studies where you have... Um, issues like abuse, substance abuse, or physical violence at home, if you have neglectful issues like that, or even if you have massive cultural issues of oppression when uh, refugees come from encampments uh, coming out of genocides and stuff like that, it's usually three to four generations of separation before that impact is actually left their minds and their hearts, to the point where there's a study called epigenetics. It actually affects them down to a genetic level. So there's actually this lasting impact, your effects. But then what's amazing is the amount of testimonies many of you have probably experienced in yourself or even heard of coming out of addiction, even with parents who only modeled addiction, or coming out of abuse when you've had parents who only model abuse, because we also believe in a God who can come in and, like I said just before, blesses us and gives us forgiveness, and he is gracious, and he can actually bring that salvation into our lives in a moment and break that chain. So there's a contrast from our impacts that can destroy people's lives generations down, but God's love is thousands of generations down and ongoing. So diving into that, what are we learning here that is such a big deal? Why does this matter for Christmas? So we're starting off on first advent with the first thing God describes himself with. The first thing that we get when we hear God's description of who he is, how we're supposed to understand him, how we're supposed to connect with him, it starts with a name. God gives us a name. And this is massive because at the point, and your Bibles all likely say the Lord, which is a title, or God, which is a title. Sometimes we say a deity, which is a theological, like, philosophical term. A name is personal, right? Like uh, a name is, you know, you give your name to whatever, even DoorDash and Uber Eats has my name. They know it as well. But for the most part, like, well, actually most people know me as Grant. It's not a good example. If anyone calls me Mr. Miller, it's because I'm in trouble or I've won something. And that's just a scam because I don't enter anything ever. But a name is something personal. You call somebody by name when you want to address them. You talk to Rob when I actually want to talk to you, Rob, not just person sitting there in front. Uh, a name is like my wife, Leslie. I talk to her. I don't say the wife. I don't say spouse, right? She is a person. And this actually means that God is in some ways a person, not like a human, but somebody we actually can connect with and have a real relationship with. That's where it starts. And it's interesting, right? We think we're, you know, if you're going through the Bible chronologically, it's like 85 chapters into the book before we finally get a name for God. 
And we've had all these other titles for God at the path. The very first time God is described in Genesis, you get this Hebrew word El Shaddai, which again is, is a name. Sometimes we, we use it maybe sometimes almost wrongly in worship. It just literally means uh, the same term. El was a term for a pagan god. El Shaddai is like the god who's better than those other pagan gods. But they're just terms. Yahweh is the first time we get a name. And it's powerful. Names have impact. They change things. So here's the thing. The first one we're going to look at is names have meaning. Um, names are uh, typically names have uh, sometimes designs. I mean, in the Western world, it's, it's true, especially my generation, right? Like names are just an attempt to come up with something super creative to look really good on Instagram and be hard for teachers to spell and pronounce for the rest of their lives. Uh, even though we have thousands of repeats of the same name, but uh, especially in the Hebraic tradition, in this culture where Moses was in, names have massive impact. In fact, you named people uh, after what was either the blessing towards them or what was kind of surrounding the context of their lives. Taking just a quick glance through, so if we read back in the Bible, one of the first significant people we're introduced to is a man named Abram. Uh, God works through to have a son well into his old age. Abram means exalted father, and then God fulfilled this blessment, and then he renamed him to Abraham, which means father of many nations. There's meanings behind it. And then his son Isaac, he was born, and it was such a surprise and such a miracle to this old man Abram that uh, Sarah, his wife, laughed when he was born. So Isaac means laughter. And then his son Jacob, he was born, and Jacob actually is like a colloquial, it means heel grabber, which is like cheater, somebody who, uh, he's uh, yeah, cheater or thief or stealer, which is kind of sums up a lot of Jacob's early life how he even came right out of the womb. He's a twin, grabbed the heel of his uh, other twin who came out first. And, and then God renames him. So renaming also plays an important role too in biblical literature. God renames Jacob to Israel, which means one who wrestles with God. And this happened after a moment where Jacob uh, saw an angel, the angel of the Lord, who actually was the Lord in the scriptures. And Jacob was just wrestling with him and he was losing badly, but he wouldn't stop. And he said, I won't stop until you bless me. And then God said, okay, so I'm going to name you after this moment. You're wrestling with me. Um, our first daughter, we named Adia. Powerful story behind that. One night, my wife and I were sitting on the couch or in bed, uh, scrolling through Instagram, right, sending each other cute pic videos and pictures like every good married couple does if you're under 40. And uh, we came across this really cute page that uh, there was this like two-year-old girl who was a superstar skier. She's just ripping down the mountain. She's got like the little commentary going and they lived in Fernie and we were just like got enamored and we're following this page and then we discovered that girl's name is Adia and we heard it out loud and we're like, that's really cute. That's nice. I like that name. But the official story is, because after the fact when she was born and we named her and we Googled it and apparently Adia in Swahili means gift. So that's the meaning. Her name means gift. It's not just an Instagram influence. There's deep meaning, but... There is meaning. So Yahweh, what does that mean? What is that intention? Uh, let's actually break it apart. And I, you know, I have so many notes, I don't want to go through it all because not 65 minutes this morning. Um, Yahweh, that's how God describes himself. We actually had a moment way before the first time Moses encounters God, the start of their relationship, and there's this burning bush with a voice coming out of it, and it's God speaking to Moses. says, come here, Moses. And Moses says, who are you? And God replies with, I am who I am. 
as a name, right? It's a little bit, and that's what we actually get there, but it's not Yahweh. The Hebrew there is, I'm going to butcher this too. I don't speak Hebrew, but I listen to this over and over again to try to memorize it. Ehe, Asher, Ehe. Sounds a bit different than Yahweh. There's a reason for that. When God speaks his own name, it is a direct, the grammar is direct. It says, I am who I am. But it's also in the sense that says, it could be translated, who I have been, I will always be. Completely. But then God, when Moses asks, God, what do I call you? It's now this third person, kind of a, almost a made up way of saying that, but for Moses, which is almost a better way of saying, who he is, he will always be. That's what Yahweh means. He is who he is. It's what we call him. God wouldn't call himself that. He says, this is how you call me. Who I have been, I will always be. Now, who here is a nice person? Like, no hands came up. Bad sign. Don't come to this church. Are you nice all of the time? Oh, yeah. Yeah, good. Because you got a one and a half year old. Yeah, I know. I'm there too. Who here is very generous? Are you generous all of the time? Are you compassionate all of the time? Right? God describes himself right off the bat as compassionate, slow to anger, long of nostrils, with love for thousands of generations. And with his name being who he is, he will always be. That means he is compassionate when? Always. That's right. He is loving when? Always. He is just when? Always. That is who God is. That is his character. So that we get this idea. His name has meaning, and from the meaning, we get a bit of a sense of who God is holistically, always. So that was the first part. His name has meaning. Second part uh, brings us to is he has a name because he needs a name to distinguish him. Now, this, this part might blow your mind, and it blew my mind the first time I started dialing into it, because I, Western Christianity sometimes has this mindset that um, we believe in a God who's out there, who created the universe, who created everything that's in it, and who's interacted with us and sent his son, Jesus. And everything else is make-believe and hocus-pocus. There is nothing else. It's this uh, study called monotheism, where there is only God and there is nothing else. What's a little wild is that's not actually the worldview Jesus had, and it's not the worldview that the Bible describes. What's the first commandment that Moses wrote down on the stone tablets? You shall have no other gods before me. Which is a pretty strong implication. That wasn't just a throwaway of saying, okay, you crazy people back there in that one specific time who had all these other things, don't do that. Don't collect Pokemon playing cards or whatever. Don't have any other gods as if there are other gods. Lowercase g is just a title. There are other things that are invisible that have impact and power and influence in our world. And this doesn't drop the entire dialogue of the Bible. It talks about nations under the power of other gods distinguishing Yahweh above them. Yahweh gives himself the name who I am above them. I am powerful. In fact, he created everything. Somehow in this cosmic display, uh, they came to being out of God's creation, out of Yahweh's creation. But there are other gods. So we have to distinguish him. And this doesn't even drop uh, in the New Testament. Uh, the Apostle Paul, who wrote books like we've been studying here, Galatians, for the past year, he wrote a lot of the books in the New Testament. He planted churches. He acknowledged them. He doesn't call them gods. He calls them demons. There's even this moment in uh, one of the books, uh, Letters to the Corinthians, where people are asking, well, should we, should we eat food sacrificed to these other gods? And Paul says, well, 
it, it doesn't really matter, but it kind of does because the gods they worship are demons behind them. And I don't want you getting involved with demons. They have power and they can affect your life. There are other things out there with massive impact. And in fact, and this is a beautiful thing, we often get in our mind thinking that it's us as followers of Jesus versus them who don't like Jesus, but that's not it. The Apostle Paul to the Ephesians, he says, our battle is not with this world. It's not with Elon Musk or whoever other celebrities or with your neighbor who thinks that it's stupid that you go to church or even with somebody who's struggling. It's not with them. It is with things outside of this world. There is a battle in our world, and when you take a step back and take a look at where we're at, and you try to apply this naturalistic sense of our world that if it's evolution of we're just getting a little bit better each time, survival of the fittest, it's a bit of a joke, hey? You put a mask on our face and we crumble into a pile of nothingness? Like, what is going on in our world? There are powers at B, invisible powers in this world, that we need to be weary of. Biblical scholar N.T. Wright says it really well. He says, uh, when we humans commit idolatry or this idea that's worshiping what is not God, giving some sort of power or some sort of value in our lives to something else, we thereby give to other creatures or other beings in the cosmos an authority over us and that we were supposed to have over them. When we worship an idol or another god, whatever it is, you abdicate something that in your own proper human authority you had and now you've given it to this other thing. I can't help but think our Western culture's obsession with sex and then this massive multi-billion dollar industry fueled by human trafficking and the reality of pornography in the world and child sex trafficking that happens that there's not a demon on top of that that's affecting it. That's not just the creation of a little bit of human depravity. There is evil in the world at play. So we have a name for God to distinguish him apart from these other things that we are tempted to worship, that we're tempted to give our efforts and energy to. So we have Yahweh. And then lastly, his name points to Jesus. And this is a beautiful part of, this is why we're here and first Advent, Advent is looking forward with hope and expectation towards the birth of Christ that we celebrate, and it's so good, because at the end of the day, this is, so we often get in our minds this sense that there's this God of the Old Testament from these stories that are really, really cool, but God is this conservative, strict, it's got all his rules and stuff, kind of eggs in the basket, and then Jesus comes along, everyone loves Jesus, right? Jesus is great. He's like the son who went off to college and got all liberal and came back. And he's like, God, God, maybe, Dad, maybe we don't have to kill everyone. What if I just did it, right? And it's all fine. Really bad view of Jesus and a really bad view of God. The vibes that we get from both sides, that strict and disciplined and just view that we have sometimes of Yahweh in the Old Testament applies to Jesus. And that loving, compassionate, personal, arms around and crying with his friends view we have of Jesus applies to Yahweh. Because listen to this. So we're going to head forward now, fast forwarding to the Gospel of John in the New Testament, John chapter 1. This is the opening in the story of Jesus entering to the world. So John 1 says this, in the beginning was the word. Now, word is John's way of describing God, but listen to this, it kind of comes through it. And the word was with God, and the word was God. 
He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. He's talking about Jesus now. This is the, the uh, prelude to Jesus coming up. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. The word became flesh, became a person, and made his dwelling among us. That word dwelling. It was said a few times in the Exodus passage. Dwelling is also the same. That's the Greek word now. We're in the New Testament. Dwelling can mean tent. So what if I said it this way? The word became flesh and, made and met in the tent among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. Any of this language ringing a bell? Who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. See any parallels that are happening here? This is that same moment where Moses talked to God and said, God, show me your glory. And God said, okay, meet me on the mountain and we're gonna have this moment and I'm gonna give you my name and I'm gonna give you my description and who I am. And what the author of the Gospel of John here is saying is this happened again. It's kind of like a parallel to the same thing, but here it is, but even better. Because listen to John 1.18, kind of where that passage ends. No one has ever seen God in that moment with Moses, God said, you won't see my face. You're only going to see the back of me. You can't handle it. I am way too great for you. I'm going to tell you about me, give you a name, but you can't see me. So 18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who himself is God. And in the closest relationship with the father, and then we see Jesus. This is taking that moment, the first time God describes himself to us, that we get a name and we get his characteristics. And now we have it coming through in Jesus. Here's the cap part of it. Jesus is Yahweh, all in all. Amen, I heard it. That is exactly, that's what it should be. There's a resounding amen. Jesus is Yahweh. We are taking a look at the Old Testament because for Christmas, we're celebrating the same God with the name who is present, who excites us. This is massive. John 17, uh, going further on, the author John just helps hammer right in there too because the name is powerful. John, uh, Jesus says to his disciples, I have revealed or he's, he's praying to God actually in front of his disciples. He says, I have revealed you, Father, to them. I have revealed your name to the world. And I kind of want to end here in Philippians, uh, another book in the New Testament where we have this hymn that's taken from the same old context, this language that the followers of Jesus who were believers in God and now they're trying to wrestle, who's Jesus? Does Jesus fit into my framework? I, I worship the Lord. That's how it's written in the Bibles uh, for a whole bunch of historical reasons and, and whatnot. But I, I've worshipped Yahweh. Is Jesus, is Jesus part of that? So then Philippians uh, chapter 2, verse 9 says this. It's a bit of a hymn that's bringing it out to really help us see this. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, exalted Jesus to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Lord, Yahweh, to the glory of God the Father, the Lord. And so I'll just, as a little cap, you know, here's some tidbits, party tricks. You'll see in your Bibles always, it's going to be written the Lord. And there's a bunch of different historical traditions for why that's happened, um, including the old super nerdy, cool grammatical issues. But the main part being, for thousands of years, there is a fear around misusing the Lord's name in vain, Yahweh, not calling him. And it's too bad that that actually happened because it became such a fear that they stopped saying it altogether and replaced it with a title. All caps to give us some distinguishment, the Lord. But again, it's just a title. It's not intimate. As God said, call me by my name. 
And that comes with the weight too. It says, call me by my name, but don't disappoint me. Don't use this name and add something onto it that's not part of my character. Compassionate and slow to anger and full of grace and truth and just. But call me by my name. So because of that tradition, because getting the, the name, you know, he who shall not be named all the way through the Bible recordings over and over, uh, we just get the Lord. But some of your translations might say, so mine has in parentheses, Yahweh, when we get it. So that end statement there. Philippians 2.9 Every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. And so this morning being first Advent, the first of four Sundays, as we look forward to celebrate the birth of Jesus, I just want to read one little snippet from the Christmas story, just to help focus again on how exciting this is, that we have a name. So this is from Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, part of the Christmas story. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. The Greek uh, transliteration of Jesus is Joshua, which means savior, literally a hero. Jesus will be our hero. That's the Christmas story. We're looking forward to the birth of a hero. And it goes on to say, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophets. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God's not unknowable, far off, out of reach. He's not on vacation. He didn't make earth and check out and wait for us to figure out the earth is flat or round. He is present with us. God is with us. Yahweh is relational and close, and he asks to be called by name so that we can know him and he can be known by us. And he can come to know us. And there is an open invite to begin this real relationship with God in a personal way through Jesus, through I am who I am. He is who he is, who is a, came as a baby into our world 2,000 years ago. Pray with me. God, thank you so much for this fact that we try to come up with ideas to understand you and explain you, and God, try to just grasp what is going on in our world, and we just discount you as being not part of the picture anymore, but you remind us and you tell us and you give us this clear picture from the very beginning in Exodus all the way to the birth of your son, all the way through to the letters in the New Testament that remind us that you are with us. You are present, God. You are here. God, your name is so powerful. And we see that your character is so true holistically. So God, I just pray that this, that impacts us, God, that it changes our sense and our understanding of who you are every time we think that you're not involved, God, that we're reminded by your name. You are who you are and who you will be. God, Yahweh, thank you for that connection that you initiated. God, I just pray that we are able to respond this Christmas season as we come close to you, that we develop a yearning and a longing to want to be close to you like Moses was in the tent, God, talking with you face to face like a friend. God, we thank you for this morning. We just pray that you bless this place as we go from here. God, as we make our plans and put up our trees and focus on uh, our families and friends, but God, that we have our focus on you as present in our world. God, we pray all of these things in your name, Yahweh. Amen. Thank you, everyone, and have a great week.